0: Thought Leadership from PwC.
1: 59% said that they think companies should make expenditures to address ESG issues relevant to their business, even if it reduces profits in the short term.
0: Digging in on investor expectations around ESG, this is our fall mini-series that covers all things ESG reporting. I'm Heather Horn. And thanks so much for joining us today. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know, we're huge fans of surveys and the insights they can provide. Many of our guests have stood up recurring annual surveys that have become part of the fabric of our broader business discussions. Something exciting about our guest today is that she's coming to us with a survey that's never been done before, and that's perfectly in line with something that's top of mind for many finance and accounting professionals today, ESG reporting. So today we're going to cover the first of its kind 2021 global investor survey on driving progress in ESG. This is an in-depth survey that's all about driving a deeper understanding of what it is that investors are looking for and what's truly valuable to them as they consider the ESG-related disclosures of their investment targets. Talking us through the results of the survey will be Hillary Eastman, who leads Global Investor Engagement at PwC. We have a lot to cover today with Hillary as we start by getting our minds around investor expectations on ESG reporting. So let's dive in. So Hillary, welcome to the podcast and definitely interested to hear about the results of your ESG investor survey, but maybe to help the audience level set, can you just share exactly what the survey was and in particular, why we decided to do it now?
1: Yeah, I think you can't get away from a conversation about ESG lately. It seems that everyone's talking about it. And as you know, PwC's announced a big investment in ESG globally, trying to help our clients navigate the ESG landscape. Um, This is all over the papers and their arguments for and against ESG. Some see it as an add-on, some see it as an integral part of doing business and managing a business. So we wanted to see what investors think and where are they in this as a key stakeholder for companies. Um, We know our clients are dealing with Uh, This and getting a lot more requests and questions from investors and analysts. And we know investor relations teams are trying to field questions uh, more and more about this. Companies are dealing with the ratings agencies and trying to prioritize them. And that seems to be becoming an industry in itself. So we wanted to ask a bit about that and where that's going. Uh, So we wanted to focus a lot on the reporting side of things, but we also wanted to look at things like, of course, on assurance, but also the link between ESG and pay and incentives. Uh, So there was a lot to cover and it was it was time to do it, I think.
0: And then in terms of the, res- uh, the responses to the survey, what types of entities responded? And can you give us a sense for just how many responses you got?
1: Yeah, we got 325 responses to the online survey. That's a lot. We've done, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we've done a number of in-depth interviews in various parts of the world um, with our colleagues. We have probably, by the end of that, we'll probably have about 40 interviews We try to get a mix of people who traditionally focus on ESG and some who don't because we want to get that broad perspective and understand if there are differences in views and how mainstream is this really becoming. Uh, 74 respondents were based in the U.S., so that gives us a really good understanding of what the U.S. market thinks. There were responses from portfolio managers. That was the biggest group that responded we also had some analysts of course asset owners like pension funds and we had a few retail investors a lot of them were longer term investors so three to year three to five years were over five years so that was good i think it probably is a, a kind of a good example of esg as a longer term issue so it tends to probably you know we had a self-selecting audience i suppose for that so mm-hmm.
0: All right. And then I you started touching on this, but just again, sort of from a level setting perspective, from the main areas that you covered in the survey, I know you said uh, the sort of focus, uh, but any specific areas
1: you, you dug deeper on? We've done a lot on the reporting side and what's important to investors versus the quality of what they're getting. And we did a lot on what they are looking for from an investment analysis perspective. So what is it that they think, uh, what do they actually use and how do they use it in their decision-making and what are the areas that they think companies should be prioritizing to help them do their job better?
0: All right. We're going to come back to that. I'm going to ask a few more level setting questions before we do that, because um, I think that's exactly why our listeners are tuning in to get the answers to that, those questions. And, um, so in, you mentioned the number of U.S. respondents, but given that this is such a global issue, what was the broader geographic distribution of the responses that you got?
1: So we got a number from Europe or European countries that will aggregate as Europe, um, a number also from the U.K. So I think f- from uh, um, most of them were from U.S., Europe and U.K. And then we had Quite a few from Asia Pacific, scattered across Asia Pacific, uh, but because the laws and regulations and culture and stuff are so different in some parts of the world, we thought aggregating them is a little difficult. But, uh, but I think if, I think we've got a global perspective, but it, it's definitely geared towards the European, U.S. and U.K. markets.
0: Okay. And then uh, the one other sort of level setting question, Hillary, before we get into the results, is that I know one of the key things you looked at is whether the respondents were um, the signatories to responsible investing body or initiative. And so how many of the respondents had signed on to one of those initiatives versus not?
1: We asked whether they're a signatory to a responsible investing body. So something like the UN's principles for responsible investment, because we know that a number of investors are signatories to things like that. And actually that that number is growing. And we wanted to see if those who are signatories have different views than those who are not. And actually, I'm really glad that we asked this question because there is a big difference in a lot of areas. And we'll go through that. But about 60% of the respondents were signatories of a responsible investment body or initiative.
0: All right. So now let's start to get into um, some of the results. In terms of how we're looking at the results, most of our listeners are from the CFO and controller organizations. And so they are getting more and more pulled in to this area. So where would you start if you were talking to a CFO or controller in terms of sort of high level findings or things to focus on?
1: That's a really good question, because we did touch on a lot of things. Um, I'd start by saying this is a global survey. And so a lot of the I mean, overall results will be interesting. But I think from a A U.S. perspective, it'll be important to think through what the U.S. results are. So I'll I'll focus on those. Uh, But where a company's shareholder base is will be critical to this because we did see such differences in the geographical responses. Uh, You know, if you're a U.S. company, but most of your shareholders are in Europe, you're going to want to look at things a little bit differently. So um, I think there were uh, a couple of things that really stood out to me. One was the need Uh, to for investors to understand the relevance of ESG risks and opportunities to the business and that was the number one message we got is the relevance to the business and for more and more investors this isn't an add-on nowadays it's not a niche area but it has the potential to be fundamentally important to their understanding of the business and its performance and its prospects. There are four things that I think if I were in a finance team I would Particularly interested in Um, one is that ESG is becoming more integrated into investment decision making, and they're expecting that uh, from a corporate perspective as well. So uh, they want invest uh, sorry they want companies to embed ESG into their strategy. Uh, This was a difference between the US and global though. I mean, eighty two percent globally said that they do, sixty four percent still a majority, but much smaller in the US said that they do, and. They also, investors are also starting to use this information for screening an investment um, or screening their investment opportunities. So, about 70% globally said this, but 60% in the US said it.
0: So, Hillary, before you go on to the next one, so when you say that, you're saying that, you know, as they're deciding whether to make an investment, one of the sort of gating questions is the company's sort of stance on ESG. Is that Correct.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what are they doing on any of the environmental, social, or governance issues? It might also be with regard to the ratings, ESG ratings that they have. So they could just say, I don't want any ESG ratings that are um, below a certain threshold. And they would, you know, so the so that's where the reporting comes in, because that's what the ratings agencies are using.
0: Yeah. And we'll come back to that, because with the rating agencies, given that they're all using different criteria companies can have widely different scores. So having this as a gating issue, um, definitely something then to focus and think about as companies are thinking about reporting. So,
1: yeah. So um, another thing that, that we asked about was about who should be accountable for this, of uh, managing ESG issues. So we asked, should it be the C-suite? And um, the majority said yes, because it helps them see how seriously a company takes ESG issues. And, We asked more in depth in the interviews, and the interviews show that the tone from the top helps show the seriousness of managing ESG issues and has that cascade throughout the business. But they also said it can't sit with one person. So the most common role mentioned was the CEO, but of course, the CEO is responsible for a number of things. (laughs) (laughs) So adding this to the list um, may or may not be helpful. So, uh, but certainly they think it should be from the the C-suite, someone that, can really drive this throughout the business. Um, Another thing that we asked about was whether, uh, what kind of actions investors would take if they don't think that companies are doing enough on ESG. And the top things that they said that they will do, and this was pretty much in order, are firstly, they'll engage with the company to explain their views and try to understand what the company's doing. The second thing they'll do is of course vote. Um, So they'll vote against director appointments or resolutions and um, the third thing they said was that they'll divest or sell their investment. There were a couple of other things that we asked, like would you publicly shame the company, things like that. But the um but the the top three areas were that engaging, voting, and divesting point. And then the fourth area, which will be, I think, of real interest to finance teams, is that they are looking for better reporting about ESG. And in particular, they want to know how these issues are being governed. And as I've said a number of times, but I'll probably continue to say is about the relevance of the company's business model.
0: All right. So I have to rewind for a moment because you said you asked um, additional questions on sort of the actions that investors would take, including if they would publicly shame or public shaming. And did you get investors that said that they were doing that or taking that tactic or was that low on the list?
1: (laughs) Um, It was low on the list. We asked the question about what they have done in the past versus what they would do in the future. So um, I don't have the US results in front of me, but they, you know, in the past, 62% said that they have never publicly criticized a company. Um, And if you compare that to the future, it was, um, you know, only 26% said that they are likely to do that in the future. So so they're it's not high on the list at all
0: yeah although if 62% that said they haven't done that in the past that does mean that almost 40% have
1: well we asked about how frequently they've done it so okay. about 12% said that they frequently do it whether it's very frequently somewhat frequently uh so i mean cuz you see it on twitter sometimes people will say something you know yes <laughs> but, yes. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's not their preferred means to do it. And I've heard anecdotally outside the survey investors saying that that's kind of a last resort. They wouldn't, they just don't do that. you
0: know. Right. Because it seems like they just move on to a different investment rather than, than doing that. But I think that's a great lead into the next question I have, because as you were speaking, I kept thinking, we're using ESG as this like, almost like group, right? So, um, as though, you know, when you were talking actions on ESG, but clearly there's big difference if you think between climate, social and governance mm-hmm. or environmental, I'm um, equated to climate. Yeah. So did you dig in at all and get any sense of, is there one topic that's more important or one area where, you know, that, that investors are focused first among the ESG? and G?
1: Yeah, we did ask about various E topics, S topics and G topics to see which of the areas that they're focused mainly on and to see if they are, um, you know, more on E, more on S, more on G, or if it's a combination of them. And when we asked the question about what they think companies should prioritize addressing, uh, the first one. So in the global results, the first one was reducing scope one and two in greenhouse gas emissions. So that's top of the agenda for investors in almost all jurisdictions. Uh, and the second one on the list was worker health and safety. And there was actually a 20 percent gap between the two. So 65 percent said greenhouse gas emissions and 44 percent uh, said worker health and safety. So it was quite a big gap. Um, and I think that's because there's so much of a focus on climate at the moment, um, partly because of COP, but also because of all the scientific evidence coming out that we've just really got to do something. And they're looking for business to play their part in doing that. Now, for the U.S. and also for Canada, worker health and safety, was at the top. So 51% put worker health and safety first. And the scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions were second. So it was swapped, but there was only a 5% gap between the two. So they put them quite closely, but it was 46% said that scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions should be addressed as an urgent priority.
0: Wow, so definitely a big difference between the US and global. And I think even we're seeing that with some of the rules that are coming out in the EU in terms of reporting, et cetera. But one thing that really stands out to me is that, you know, let's look at the US and Canada the number one thing is still only almost, well, it's about 50%. So that means there's not a lot of consensus among investors in terms of what they're looking for. And so did you get a good sense? Is it kind of all over the board other than that? Or are there things that follow closely that are sort of almost equally important?
1: So for the US and Canada, they're actually remarkably uh, similar, which isn't surprising, actually, given the Closeness ge- geographically. Um, there are a few differences, though. So things like um, improving workforce and executive diversity and inclusion is higher up on the list for um, the U.S. than it is in Canada. So in the U.S. it was 37 percent, and Canadian Canada it was 29 percent. Uh, but it's you know number four on the list for the U.S. and it's number seven on the list for Canada. If you look at it graphically, it's quite narrower for the U.S. and Canada than it is for other parts of the world. So, um, and the overall results, like I mentioned, the 20% gap uh, for the global responses on the first two things. If you look at it from whether they're responsible investment signatory or not, um, scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions is by far the top at 75%. And the second one, again, is worker health and safety, but that's at 47%. So that's a really big gap. Oh, so really big gap
0: then. Do you know, so what were like the top five or so for the U.S.? We, I think we mentioned one, two, and four. So,
1: Yep. Okay. So top five for the U.S. Um, worker health and safety was the first one. Reducing scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions, second. Mi- uh, minimizing data security and privacy risks was number three diversity, workforce and executive diversity is number four, and addressing human rights in the supply chain is number five.
0: Wow. So kind of covering but a lot of yeah.
1: S issues, actually. Yeah, it's
0: definitely interesting. One question I also wanted to ask you is, uh, you you mentioned that you ask specific categories. And one question I often get is people just asking examples of, of things within S and G that investors are focused on i think again e is a little easier to wrap your head around because to your point it's in the newspaper every day so what are just some examples of things we asked in those couple areas
1: so in addition to the ones that i mentioned so on the s side we also had um, training employee training and development um, which is actually number six for the u.s um, and that was all we had on the S. So actually.
0: Wow. So all of those S's made it into the top six, basically, for the yeah. U.S. So yep. if you'd asked more, who
1: knows, they might have also yep. been in the top 10. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So um, some of the governance ones were actually lower on the list, like improving board diversity is um, second from the bottom at 15 percent. Um, transparent um, tax strategy was the last on the list. Um, in fact, the transparent tax strategy was quite low for all countries. And I think that's probably because there's a, if you're going to, I mean, we asked them to pick five, one mm-hmm. of the five most important issues. We didn't ask them to rank, but we said pick five. And I think something like taxes, there's a lot of disclosure around tax. I know there's some you know, concerns about not enough transparency on it, but, but overall, there's a lot of disclosure on tax. So I think that's probably why that was smaller.
0: Well, and even U S board diversity, there's already so many actions that, you know, Different bodies are taking to improve board diversity that maybe the investors felt like that was another one where there's already action being taken yeah, in that yeah. area. So, so, all right. Uh, so, then have about let's keep moving. Although, again, I think we're talking to accountants, so digging into the data is quite interesting. <laughs> but, anything from an ROI perspective, so are there any trends in terms of what investors believe? Um, that they'd be willing to accept in terms of returns? And specifically, I think where this question comes in is, are they willing to accept a lower return in exchange for a better ESG performance?
1: Yeah, yeah, we thought this was something that we needed to really delve into. Uh, so we asked two related questions around this. Um, one was whether investors think companies should make expenditures to address ESG issues relevant to their business, even if it reduces sh- uh, short term profits. And the answer was overall yes. So about 60% in the US said yes, 75% globally said yes. And I think this should give some comfort to companies because I know they worry that investors will be critical of any reductions in EPS. Um, but I think the It also shows that companies need to explain the rationale for such investments so that investors can be comfortable that it is it's relevant to their business. It is a a short term hit and there's a benefit coming at the end of it. We asked a second question because we know that with changes in profitability, there tends to be an effect on returns. So we asked whether investors would be willing to accept a lower rate of return on their investment if a company undertook activities that benefit the environment or society. So the response there was uh, pretty much not so much. Um, 22% of the U S respondents said that they would for the global sample, this was 34%. And of this this is a subset of respondents for asset managers and the institutional asset owners. So it's not everyone. It's the ones that are managing other people's money, really uh, or beneficiary money. And we also then asked a follow on question of how much of a return would you be willing to sacrifice? And, They about half in the US said that they would take up to half a percentage point lower return. Now we didn't ask a follow-on question of why or why not, which I really wanted to, but we were um, limited on the space. (laughs) Uh, But we did ask about this in the in-depth interviews, or at least some of the in-depth interviews, and three things came out um, that give us some ideas on why this might why this we would have received this answer. One is that it could be already factored into the long-term cash flow forecasts and expectations. So, And if it is, it wouldn't have a direct impact on return, um, or at least you wouldn't be able to identify it. The second one, which probably came out most strongly than all, is the fiduciary duty. So these trade-offs need to be really, really clear. Otherwise, they're going to be in violation of their fiduciary duty, and that's um, a slippery slope that we probably don't want to go down. Uh, And then thirdly, that some just don't think it's the responsibility of business to address these types of issues. And again, going back to the relevance of the business, if it's not about what, you know, how the business operates, and and it's not fundamentally important to them, uh, they think it's somebody else's, you know, governments or society's issue to deal with.
0: So Hillary, let's rewind. And then I want to dig a little deeper into the fiduciary question. But can you remake your two points? Because there's a pretty big drop between the 59% to the 22% focusing just on US. So again, what were the two things we were comparing? And what would you how would you explain the difference?
1: It's it's something we've been trying to understand and really stood out when we got the results. So 59% said that they I think companies should make expenditures to address ESG issues relevant to their business, even if it reduces profits in the short term. And then 22%, though, said that they'd be willing to accept a lower return on investment for a company that undertakes activities that benefit the environment or society. Now, the questions were asked in slightly different ways, and that was intentional uh, because we wanted to see partly... about this link to again the relevance to the business um i mean there are companies that are that are making changes incremental changes and sometimes big changes to make sure that they are going to remain around so for some companies the clock is ticking um in some industries and then and they're going to have to make some pretty fundamental shifts to their business models and then there are others who are just trying to do things a little bit better. So if you look at, say, the retail industry with packaging, they have to make these changes for the environmental impact that they bring. They are relevant to the business, and there could be regulation that comes in or changes that come in that they just have to deal with. So the question is, if you undertake this expenditure, or some say, think of it as an investment now, then your company will be better positioned in the future to be able to deal with these issues. And in some ways, you know, if you do it now before it's mandated, then you have much more uh, leeway to be able to do it the way that you think needs to be done now in terms of how that translates into returns though there is a question around how does a lower profit in short term is short term being undefined but is it this Mm -hmm. this quarter this year um, the next couple of years but and then how does that translate into the return on your investment and again you know is that a long-term hit on return or is it something that is for the next quarter the next year um, but then in the long run, you're better off. So so one of the things that as we're thinking through this, one of the things we think, especially looking at the reporting questions, we'll, which we'll get to later on, is how do should companies or can companies better tell the story of how ESG issues are affecting their business and the changes that they're needing to make and the costs or investments that they're having to make to be able to address those issues? And what's the benefit in the long run and how are they creating value in the long run?
0: So then, Hillary, did you see any difference here between the signatories, the responsible investor signatories,
1: versus otherwise? Or yes, um, we definitely saw a big difference with that. So, for the global sample, the thirty-four percent said that they would be willing to take a hit to return. In for those that are signatories of a responsible investment body, they um, their response was thirty-eight uh, percent. So they were slightly over the global average.
0: All right. So that's helpful. And then, Henry, you said, and this was just in passing, I want to make sure I caught it correctly. Was both of these questions only asked to asset managers or was it only the ROI question that that was focused on asset managers?
1: Um, They both were asked to all of them. But the ROI question is really only relevant to people who are managing money. Right. So we've done a subset of that. I mean, just uh, in case it's of interest, it was thirty eight percent globally. So it was slightly higher if you look at all the analysts and the governance ex- professionals and retail investors as well. So um, but if you do with a subset, it's thirty four percent.
0: Wow. So then what I find so interesting is you made the fiduciary point, and I guess, Part of that then does go to the fact if you're managing someone else's money, then making that decision for them to take a lower return, that's a tough decision to make. And maybe yeah. they don't feel there's laws or regulations or otherwise that permit that. So something to think about.
1: Yes, definitely. All
0: right. So let's keep going then. I think this is probably what our audience has really been waiting for is talking about reporting and Let's talk generally, and then I'll have some specific questions. But what sources of information did uh, for ESG information did investors tell you that they're looking at?
1: Uh, It was really interesting because you know how we often hear a criticism that uh, investors don't use annual reports anymore. Uh, Well, apparently for ESG reporting, that's different. So annual reports and sustainability reports were top of the list of sources for ESG information. The second source is investor presentations from the company. Um, They also use company press releases. And, of course, they use third-party data like Bloomberg and Capital IQ. Um, They also use the news as a source of information. So one of our interviewees made a comment about how Wall Street is always reading the paper and will factor uh, anything that's in the press into share prices immediately. So what this really said to me was that the top three sources of information that investors are using, and this is the U.S. respondents, by the way, um, are in the company's control and that companies should be taking advantage of this and using these sources as a way to tell their own story about what they are doing and not leaving it to others. Uh, And I think that brings us to what investors think is important and how good they think what they're getting is. Because if they're using these as sources of information, presumably they think that they're, you know, pretty good sources of information. Uh, But that wasn't always the case in what we uncovered. So we asked them what they're using those sources for. And one is about understanding the governance over ESG issues. And again, um, I sound like a broken record, but the relevance to the business model. So those are the two most important areas that they think reporting should cover. Uh, They also mentioned that they want to know the rationale for environmental commitments made. So like a commitment to net zero. And also, what is the impact that the environment is having on business performance?
0: Okay, so then question for you on that, because one of the things anecdotally that I've heard people say is that, you know, maybe quality of ESG reporting isn't where it needs to be. And so it's not as reliable for investors, etc. Did you get any sense of that from the your survey questions?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think the um, the way we asked the question was, you know, write the or tell us the importance of this source of information or this type of information. And then tell us what you think the quality is. Is it good? Is it poor somewhere in between? And there were huge gaps between what's important on average, and the level of quality on average. So the biggest gaps that we saw between importance and quality are with describing the impact that the environment has on business performance. So one thing they said was really, really important, but the gap of how good the quality is, was quite low. As far as the gap is quite high, the quality is quite low. And they also want to understand the impact of ESG risks and opportunities on financial performance and the gap between the importance of that information and the quality of that information was really, uh, really big. So I think it's critical that companies think about where their reporting can improve and make sure it's most useful in telling that story to their investors.
0: And then Hillary is this an area where globally it was pretty consistent with US or was there a lot of difference uh, between either across the globe or the US itself?
1: Yeah, it was generally consistent. It um the order of things were slightly different. So for the global investors relevance to the business model was number 1 and governance over ESG issues was a bit lower down, but uh, it was by and large the the reporting the order of the reporting and the quality of the reporting was pretty consistent.
0: All right. That's helpful. And then one other comment I often get from preparers is that they feel pressure to report under lots of different frameworks because all, you know, investors are all using different information. You kind of pointed that out, but you know, do you, which one do you follow? And so, you know, often they follow more than one. Did you get any sense from investors of whether you know how important it was to get to just one set of standards, and/or if there's particular standards that they're interested
1: in. Yeah, that's the question of the day. Exactly. <laughs> um, the, yeah, I mean, there are a couple of things that stood out in the things that they told us in terms of the characteristics of reporting. So comparability and consistency came up really, really highly. Um, they're also wary of companies cherry picking what they want to report. So on the one hand, they want it to be relevant. On the other hand, they don't want the cherry-picking because they're worried about bias and rose-colored glasses and all that. Uh, But we did ask whether their decision-making would be better if there was a single set of ESG reporting standards that companies were using. And about two-thirds in the U.S. said that that would be true. Uh, For the global sample, that was about three-quarters, so... uh,
0: that's is a lot. I think those are the highest percentages of anything we've talked about so far. Almost. Yeah. So. Wait. Wait
1: till we get to assurance. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they also think that a company should apply a reporting framework in its entirety instead of a subset. So this picking and choosing from different standards and frameworks is problematic um, in the because it reduces comparability, it reduces consistency, and it also gets to the the cherry picking and the bias concern that investors have. Uh, and they also said that they want that reporting to be prepared under a recognized framework. So clearly we don't have the ISSB's standards yet, um, but there is SASB, there's TCFD, there's GRI. So they do they do want it to be under a recognized framework uh, that is you know, subject to due process and gone through extensive consultation and that kind of thing. One thing I think is anecdotally, in one of the interviews, um, someone said, you know, we can deal with two or three standards, we don't necessarily need it to be one. But if we know what those two or three are, we can make the relevant adjustments for comparability for our own purposes. So I guess they're seeing it like the IFRS US GAAP differences, they know what the differences are between them, and they can adjust for it. So,
0: so then, Hilary, a key takeaway would be, maybe again, this preparer perspective that, oh, I have to find the perfect framework for my business and maybe only to your point, picking and choosing certain things. Instead, companies may be better off picking one and then just following it. And if there's things that aren't relevant for you, maybe saying they're not relevant, but not trying to necessarily, I'm going to pick these three things from one framework and these four from a different one because that just makes it more difficult for investors.
1: Yeah, yeah, especially when they have different, Um, rules for measurement, and, you know, use the same term to talk about something different. And one of your peers is using the same term that's, you know, not the same. It makes it really hard for them to be, for investors to be able to understand what they're being told and, and know what to do with it in terms of their analysis. Well, and I think for preparers
0: too, it's sometimes a little overwhelming when there's so much, so many different ways to report things that at least if you just pick a path and follow that path, at least then you know what, you know, what direction you're going. Now, again, I think a lot of preparers listening, you know, I'm being curious also probably would prefer just one or two frameworks to be out there <laughs> yeah. than all the ones. Cause at least then, you know, what you you know, you, it's like US GAAP and IFRS to your point, you might not like all of the standard setting there, but at least you know what you need to do. Exactly. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. All right. So now you intrigued me because you made your reference to assurance. So we did talk about importance and quality previously, and I I think assurance may play into that a bit too. But what kind of feedback did you get on investor interest and having assurance on this information? Uh,
1: We got a really strong message on assurance uh, that it's critical um, for investors to know that they can trust the information and showing that the company takes ESG seriously. That's not just a PR initiative. It's something that it's actually a fundamentally important part of their business. And this was true around the world and regardless of whether they were a responsible investment signatory. So we really didn't see much of a difference geographically. Um, and the all the percentages on, in terms of what's important and what they want to see were in the, you know, 80s. So it was really, really high, some of the highest uh, you know, results in the survey. Yeah, although it's
0: interesting, in a way, if you think about investors, they're used to having financial data, that maybe not all the financial data they use has assurance, but there's always sort of the foundational information that they can go back to where there is assurance. So it's almost like it seems like maybe it's just the expectation that they're going to get data that they can rely on that you know, there's some to your point level of assurance over.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And actually that's a, a good um, point because one of the things that we did find, because we asked the question about narrative disclosures versus metrics and they definitely place more emphasis on assurance of metrics and numbers over narrative disclosures. I still think narrative is important because they need to trust those statements. But, um, but in terms of overall, it was uh, definitely a preference for metrics being assured They also think that ESG information should be assured at the same level as the financial statement audit. So, you know, you mentioned the financial reporting (laughs) and that level of assurance they get there. If it's information that they're using, I think, you know, it's clear that they want it to be at the same level as the financial statement audit, which I know poses challenges from an assurance perspective, given the fact that we don't have a a single reporting framework or at least a a couple of them um, that companies can choose to apply in their entirety. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that we heard too was what uh, that the assurance providers qualifications and characteristics play a big role in the trustworthiness of the assurance and reporting. So things like having a, um, you know, quality management systems in place, being regulated subject to ethical standards independence requirements and that kind of stuff is really important for them to be able to trust the assurance that they're getting.
0: All right. Wow. So Hillary, uh, I've, Definitely a lot to think about. And again, when you're starting to talk about numbers and percentages, I know that's just what our audience likes in terms of data. So a couple final questions to wrap things off is, as you kind of think about the survey, I know you spent a lot of time kind of digging into those results. What is sort of overall thoughts you would leave our audience with in terms of how you would think about putting all these numbers together?
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's tricky and it's a new area and it's evolving. Um, so I can see how it would be really really daunting for some companies in having to do this. But so one of the things that we did ask in our interviews was, what's the one piece of advice that you'd give to companies about how they can improve their reporting on ESG issues? And saw a few common themes come up. One was um, that they said focus on what really matters to your business and explain why this is and how you manage the inevitable trade-offs. Uh, Second thing was to benchmark to your peers, see what's good practice in the industry, but keeping in mind investors' needs for comparable information. Uh, And the final one was about being open and balanced about how you see the future regarding both the opportunities and the risks that are facing the business.
0: All right. And then, Hillary, final question is that for someone who wants to know more and see the numbers in front of them, will you be publishing any findings from, from the survey?
1: Yes, we will. So because it covered such a wide range of topics, we're going to parse it up and do it over time. So we'll be publishing findings in a series of articles and reports over the next few months. We've got one coming out by the end of this month that's going to focus specifically on some of the more climate-related topics, and that's um, you know, in preparation for COP26 in November. Uh, but we'll be doing um, a, a series of different topics on um, on the survey over the next few months. So please look out for those.
0: Yes, definitely. And for our listeners, we'll make sure we put some links in the show notes so you know where to find them. And we'll keep that updated as additional articles come out. So Hillary, fascinating topic. Um, I hope you're planning to repeat this survey uh, in the future so we can see how things move, but really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for joining me today. Join me back here next week when on Tuesday's Accounting and Reporting Show, we're launching our newest series on SEC comment letter trends. And on Thursday, we're covering the next topic in our Talking ESG series. You won't want to miss either of these new episodes. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter, at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in.
1: This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.